listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. There are things that go bump in the night, and we are the ones who bump back. Somewhere in the cosmos, perhaps, intelligent life may be watching these lights of ours, aware of what they mean. Or do our lights wander a lifeless cosmos? I couldn't help but one point in my discussions with General Secretary Gorbachev. I couldn't help but say to him, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held. If suddenly there was a threat to this world, from another planet outside in the universe. Well, I don't suppose we can wait for some alien race to come down and threaten us, but I think that between us, we can bring about that realization. Hello and welcome, Crypt Keepers. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Crypt Let's just take a second to cover the business. Please like, subscribe, follow, and all of that good stuff. But most importantly, tell a friend. Please, word of mouth goes a long way toward us bringing you these amazing stories. We want your opinion. What stories do you want us to cover? Let us know at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Have you ever had a day where you didn't quite feel like yourself? Most of us have had those days, but did you ever feel like you were sharing your body with others? Not like the multiple personalities of Billy Milligan from a couple episodes ago, but with unclean spirits. Let me introduce Ryan, my co-pilot on this mission to drop thought bombs on you. This topic has probably been our most popular throughout our podcast history. What are we talking about tonight, Ryan? We are talking about possession and exorcism, but specifically the case of Annalise Michelle. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've, I've done reading on her. I haven't, I don't know that I've heard the name pronounced out loud. Uh, Anna Elizabeth or Annalise Michelle, uh, who lived from September 21st, 1952 to July 1st, 1976, was a German woman who underwent 67 Catholic exorcism rites during the year before her death. Uh, her death ultimately was of malnutrition, for which her parents and the priest involved were all convicted of negligent homicide. Ouch. She was diagnosed. Yeah. She was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis and had a history of psychiatric treatment, which was overall not that effective. When Michelle was 16, she experienced a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by temporal lobe epilepsy. Shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with depression and was treated by a psychiatric hospital. By the time she was 20, she had become intolerant of various religious objects and began to hear voices. Her condition worsened despite medication and she became suicidal, also displaying other symptoms for which she took medication as well. After taking psychiatric medicines for five years, which failed to improve her symptoms, Michelle and her family became convinced she was possessed by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. While rejecting at first, two priests did get permission from the local bishop in 1975. The priests began conducting exorcism sessions and the parents stopped consulting with doctors. So I think that's uh, potentially a red flag. That they stopped consulting doctors? That they, Yeah, that, that, that we didn't have uh, something coming from both sides. Sure. Don't you agree? Well, I mean, being that we're coming at this from having done research and knowing where the story ends up. I mean, we did say it at the beginning, too. but Well, I can understand that her parents were like, this isn't working, so let's try something else. But I think that exorcisms need to be overseen by a doctor. And there are certainly enough Catholic and Jesuit doctors, medical, you know, medical professionals that could look over something or, or they could oversee something like this and provide that sort of, uh, they could provide that sort of support while mm-hmm. still accepting that it could be a demonic possession. 
And you're right, it's important to have, you know, two points of view there. Um, and I, I feel like her parents just gave up on, you know, the medical profession in general. But the problem is, at worst, it could be both. Mm-hmm. She could need psychiatric medication, but still be possessed. But you can't just cut off all medical professionals from overseeing this because as we'll find out this is something had it been overseen by doctors probably could have they could have prevented this death by keeping her hydrated and you know continuing to you know provide nutrition for her and Mm. we will find out later that she had stopped eating food but eight other things. So is it because yes. she was super hungry or because she was possessed by a demon or several demons? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, as you were alluding to, Annalise Michelle stopped eating food and died of malnourishment and dehydration after 67 exorcism sessions. Uh, that would have put her death, like we said earlier, at July 1st, 1976. Mm-hmm. Well, also, like we said, Michelle's parents and the two Roman Catholic priests involved were found guilty of negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail, which was reduced to three years of probation, as well as a fine. And I think they had to pay court costs as well. True. Um, There are several films based on the story. Among them is the 2005 film The Exorcism of Emily Rose and the 2006 film Requiem, as well as... Annalise, the exorcist tapes from 2011. And that's kind of what I was talking about with, you know, since we're getting done with sort of the intro to this is, you know, the, the quick synopsis of the story that, yeah, it's odd that they would not have doctors involved. And I know mm-hmm. that we'll discuss that Annalise did not want doctors involved, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of situations where we don't listen to the patient. Mm-hmm. Like we as a society can say this person is not in their right mind or they're not acting in their own best interest. We need to do this against their wishes because it's going to help them and keep them alive. Yeah. They need somebody to advocate for them. Yeah. And I think it's pretty obvious that regardless of what was going on in this, in this situation that Annalise was not in a right state of mind to be able to make decisions about her own medical care. Exactly. So j- just something I wanted to bring up. It was something that I was reading about before we uh, got on here to record. Just kind of a, yeah, just an odd discussion of like, why, you know, why would you, why would you take their word for it? Right. I mean, if, if you believe that person is possessed, then why would you be like, eh, they probably yeah. know what's best. Yeah. They're like, no, they said they're good. So uh, we're fine. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter that she only weighs 68 pounds or whatever. Like, right. right. She's, was that she her was... talking or was that Hitler? Right. Yeah. She was rough to look at the, the photos and all that, because as we'll get into one of the strange things about this case is some of the sessions were recorded, mm-hmm. you know, and normally these weren't, I mean, this was pretty early on anyway. But I think typically these sessions are not recorded. It was mm-hmm. it was uncommon and predated a lot of the, you know, stereotypical Hollywood kind of ideas that we have about what these things are like. If they would have had a doctor on hand, things may have turned out better and probably would have. But yeah, you can't you can't say somebody's crazy and then believe what they say that's Mm -hmm. counterintuitive and i mean if this person is truly if you believe this person is truly possessed by demons that lie for the sake of lying then taking her word for something is ridiculous and you touched on her appearance and you can see one of her pictures in the cover art but she looked so bad that it looked like Hollywood special effects. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was 
If I showed you a picture and said this person is possessed by demons, you'd probably be like, well, yeah, she looks like she's possessed by demons. That's yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah, she looks like uh, she looks like a Holocaust victim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. She was born in Bavaria, West Germany, to a Roman Catholic family. Michelle was brought up along with three sisters by her parents, Josef and Anna. She was religious and went to mass twice a week. When she was 16, she suffered a severe convulsion, which would basically be a seizure. Uh, would have been called a convulsion at that time and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. So it seems like epilepsy is kind of to blame for a lot of these so-called or believed possessions because of the shaking of the body and the, you know, yelling, groaning, uh, sort of things that are similar to what we see in exorcisms um, or similar to what we see in cases where exorcisms are attempted. In 1973, Michelle graduated and joined the University of Würzburg. Her classmates later described her as withdrawn and very religious. So I think that the religious stigma back then and i hate to even call it a stigma but it's a stigma today i mean if you if you bring up god people are going to laugh at you or think that you're backwards and you don't trust science and and things like that but i think back then it was probably a lot more accepted and probably a lot more widely followed so to i don't know describe her as withdrawn and very religious I think that that's being put out there kind of as being negative. And certainly, you know, we don't want to be withdrawn to the point of not interacting with other people. But the way it's described, very religious almost seems like a slight, you know, like, oh, that person's religious, very religious. You don't even want to mess with them. They're no fun. You know, that sort of thing. But that's just my impression. Is that kind of what you get out of that statement? Or do you have a different opinion? Uh, I mean, saying that somebody's religious and withdrawn might kind of paint a picture of somebody who's more reliable or less likely to pull some kind of prank like this. Like like if you were uh-huh. to think that this is a prank. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I'm definitely not trying to assert that starving yourself to death is a prank, but like to, right. you know, it, it's not her acting out. Right. You know, it, it might not occur to somebody. I do a hundred percent know what you mean. Um, you know, when somebody approaches you about religion, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, Oh God, why? Like my one night out this week and somebody's going <laughs> to talk to me about it. But you know, yeah, I, that's not exactly how I took it here. <laughs> okay. Well, good. That's, that's a good point. So let's talk about her psychiatric treatment. In June of 1970, she suffered a seizure at the psychiatric hospital where she had been staying. She was prescribed anti-convulsion drugs for the first time, including Dilantin, which did not alleviate the problem. So when we talk about psychiatric medicine, it's practicing medicine. These doctors don't necessarily have a playbook where oh this person had a seizure so this one drug will definitely work they have to kind of try different combinations of things and different medications and stuff like that it's it's not a one size fits all fix it's mm-hmm. you know this person might need this amount of this drug or they might need this to counteract the side effects and and things like that. So, you know, just the fact that Delonton didn't fix it, that's not something where, as a religious person who also believes in psychiatric medication to a certain extent, that wouldn't make me say, oh, I'm going to the priests. This didn't work. They don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. She began describing seeing, quote, devil faces at various times of the day. That same month, she was prescribed another drug, Aulept, 
which is similar to chlorpromazine and is used in the treatment of various psychoses, including schizophrenia, disturbed behavior, and delusions. So they may have treated her with a drug that may be used in schizophrenia, but I didn't see an actual diagnosis of schizophrenia. Hmm. But by 1973, she suffered from depression and began hallucinating while praying and complained about hearing voices telling her that she was, quote, damned and would rot in hell. So, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say because is a hallucination a hallucination if it's true? I mean... Like a vision? Yeah, maybe she she was hearing these voices. You know, we we kind of covered that she doesn't seem like the type that would make it up. But were they truly demonic voices from within? Or was it a mental illness? But her treatment in that hospital did not improve her health and her depression worsened. Long-term treatment did not help either, and she grew increasingly frustrated with the medical intervention, taking pharmacological drugs for five years. So in this case, if you're treating somebody for five years and they're not getting any better, you need to pass that patient on to someone else or try something totally different. Because while I give them the benefit of the doubt for about a year maybe if you're not fixing something within five years either you're doing something wrong the diagnosis is wrong the medication has been all wrong so you need to take a different approach you mm-hmm. know we talk about the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over and expecting a different result and it kind of sounds like they tried all these different things but nothing helped i mean i can't imagine for five years they're like yeah we're just going to stick with this delantin and hopefully after three and a half years of taking it it'll change you know what i mean Mm -hmm. she became intolerant of christian sacred places and objects such as the crucifix Michelle went to San Damiano with a family friend who regularly organized Christian pilgrimages. Her escort concluded that she was suffering from demonic possession because she was unable to walk past a crucifix and refused to drink the water of a Christian holy spring. So those are things that could absolutely go either way. It could be a demon insider say no you can't walk past that crucifix or it could be a mental illness where she thinks she's possessed and she thinks she can't walk past that crucifix we can only assume that her symptoms or whatever she was feeling at the time were real you know what i mean Mm -hmm. so here's a quote from father alt annalise told me and frau hein confirmed this that she was unable to enter the shrine She approached it with the greatest hesitation, then said that the soil burned like fire and she simply could not stand it. She then walked around the shrine in a wide arc and tried to approach it from the back. She looked at the people who were kneeling in the area surrounding the little garden, and it seemed to her that while praying, they were gnashing their teeth. She got as far as the edge of the little garden, then she had to turn back. Coming from the front again, she had to avert her glance from the picture of Christ in the chapel of the house. She made it several times to the garden, but could not get past it. She also noted that she could no longer look at medals or pictures of saints. They sparkled so immensely that she could not stand it. It, It's so tough because it could be the mental illness telling her that she's possessed. I, I just, I find it really interesting that no one has really suggested schizophrenia at this point. Yeah, it's interesting that it's interesting to think that it could be a mental illness that's manifesting itself in a way that we're taking to be possession, either because the symptoms are appearing to be close enough or because the mental illness itself is causing this behavior mm-hmm. like this, you know, to, to have her act as though she is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really don't know which one is more likely. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's almost like a 50-50. Yeah. And if she is possessed by demons, then, you know, maybe they wouldn't be able to stand being on the soil or drinking the water or looking at the crucifix. Or 
they could be trying to manifest themselves as a mental illness to keep her from getting an exorcism and keep her going to these doctors and keeping her, you know, highly medicated and kind of ruining her life, really. Yeah. Michelle and her family, as well as her community, became convinced and consulted several priests asking for an exorcism. The priest declined, recommended the continuation of medical treatment, and informed the family that exorcisms required the bishop's permission. In the Catholic Church, official approval for an exorcism is given when the person strictly meets the set criteria, then they are considered to be suffering from possession or infestatio, which sounds dirty. Intense dislike for religious objects and supernatural powers are some of the first indications. So, you can pretend like holy water burns you. You can pretend like you can't look at a crucifix or a metal, but it's really hard to pretend like you can speak Greek and Latin. And it's really hard to pretend that you can levitate, you know? Mm. And even though I didn't see anything about levitation in here, um, there are things that are kind of prerequisites for getting an exorcism that are extremely difficult to fake. And no matter what your feeling is about the Catholic Church, these individual priests are doing, in my opinion, what they believe is right. I don't think that these priests or her parents, of course, are having any malicious intent whatsoever they are totally buying into her being possessed and doing you know the most drastic action that can be taken when someone is possessed is an exorcism and i think they're mm -hmm. they're doing the right thing in their own minds i don't think there's any malicious intent here at all i don't think that the catholic church is like oh well look, you know if we do this exorcism then more people will join you know or something like that i don't think that there's any i guess funny business going on here yeah but i i did read that in certain cases she displayed what they call near superhuman strength mm-hmm I don't know if that's something you found or that we were going to talk about, but it was something that popped up in one or two places that she displayed a strength that was like sufficient to toss her sibling around. I think her sister, mm -hmm. it was described that she was able to throw her around like a rag doll, basically. And that even when she became, you know, pretty emaciated, like to the point that we were talking about where it's kind of tough to look at her. Mm -hmm. You know, and think that this is a person that nobody's doing anything for, really, mm -hmm. medically speaking. Um, at that point, she was still displaying, like, incredible strength. It was apparently very difficult to restrain her. So, you know, just with that little bit, it... I don't know. People are, in, are capable of incredible feats. Right. But I don't know if there's a mental illness that can cause that. So that might be one of the things that convinced them this isn't just an ordinary thing going on. Yeah, I don't think however hard I tried to pretend, I still couldn't bench press 300 pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like you can, you can fake a lot of stuff and pretend a lot of stuff, but if you're 67 pounds and you're an adult and you can still manhandle people, you can't fake that right she worsened physically and displayed aggression self-injury drank her own urine and ate insects so these are things that can be explained with mental illness but it's not common you know what i mean it's not i i i cover a lot of cases you know on other podcasts with that that deal with mental illness and specifically schizophrenia and i haven't covered a case where they drink their own urine and ate insects and that's something that you could do if you were faking but that's going the extra mile takes a lot of commitment from a <laughs> like quiet introverted church going kid Right. I say kid. She was like 23 when she died, which is basically a kid. 
Yeah, it, it is in today's terms. Back then, back then, you know, she was probably considered an adult. But, I mean, I don't know. But in any case, in November of 73, they started her on Tegretol, which is an anti-seizure drug and mood stabilizer. Uh, she was prescribed antipsychotic drugs during the course of the religious rites and took them frequently until some time before her death. So she was still taking these medications during the exorcism. Uh, despite taking these neuroleptic medications, Michelle's symptoms worsened and she began growling, seeing demons, and throwing things. All things that could be covered by mental illness or possession. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it almost makes me wonder what would happen if they had stopped her on the medication. Yeah. Because my grandma... I mean, she didn't do anything like that, but my grandma had, like, a really bad episode for a couple days where she just, like, didn't understand what was going on or where she was or who anybody was. Mm-hmm. So my mother and some of her siblings went in with all of her medicines and just, like, dumped them out on the doctor's desk, like, something here is is causing this. Yeah. Figure it out. And they, they did. They went through them and found, like, oh, yeah, these couple are probably having an interaction. They took her off one of them. Mm-hmm. Within like two days, she was totally back to normal. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't. I mean, she was confused. Yeah. Like, I've seen confusion caused by medical issues or disorientation or not being able to talk or whatever else, but not like. Not the kind of things that we're going to be hearing from the audio clips that we have. Yeah. Yeah, they're pretty disturbing. And. You guys will get to hear those kind of spread out throughout the podcast, but they're they're scary. And mm. honestly, if you are worried about being triggered by something or or just being scared, maybe skip over those because they are very disturbing. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, it's not. I definitely am not going to listen to any of it again before bed or anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, nobody's making 12 hour loops of this to go to sleep to. Right. We're not putting a drum beat behind it and hoping for a hit. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So after the break, we're going to talk about the exorcism. Oh. Hey, what's up, Crypt Keepers? Are you enjoying the show? If you haven't already, I suggest taking my true crime podcast, Exploring Evil, for a test drive. Exploring Evil focuses on lesser-known serial killers, occult murders, and murders with a paranormal twist, so it should be right up your alley. The Magdalena Soli episode features a prostitute who convinced a Mexican village she was a goddess. She presented with psychosis, religious delusions, delusions of grandeur, sexual perversions, sadism, incest, fetishism, vampirism, and pedophilia. You don't want to miss that one. In the Indian Blood Farm, we cover a case where a man had an outbuilding he was keeping the downtrodden. He kept them weak by continuously draining blood to sell to the local hospitals who were running on short supply. But one man escaped and told the world what was really happening. How about the Body Snatchers episode where corpses had their body parts replaced with PVC pipes so they could be sold for a profit? In the Antron Singleton case, we cover a rapper who killed and ate pieces of a woman. There's always something new and interesting to listen to and a lot of twists and turns. So check out Exploring Evil everywhere you find Cryptique. Hey, my name is Ryan. And I'm pretty sure I'm Joe. And we are the hosts of Movie Hell, a podcast all about movies and pop culture. We're two buddies who talk about this stuff anyway and wanted to share our own madness with all of you. Yeah, we have these discussions anyway and rant and rave about movies, TV, and pop culture in general, so why not share it? The objective of Movie Howl is to bring you reviews and discussions of flops to avoid, new stuff to see, and hidden gems that might end up being your new favorite. Whether you're looking for that perfect movie for Friday night or wondering if anybody else found Mr. Nobody as unsettling as you did, I'm sure there's something for everyone to enjoy, and if not, let us know and we can always learn and improve. Ah, boy, do we have room to improve. 
You can listen to Movie Howl on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and pretty much anywhere else fine podcasts are curated. to Cryptique. What you heard before the break and after the break is actual audio recordings of the exorcism of Annalise Michelle. And we're not going to go into it too in depth because it's in German. So we don't know what exactly what she's saying. So let's get into the exorcism. The priest we've already talked about, Ernst Alt, on seeing Michelle declared that she didn't look like an epileptic and that he did not see her having seizures. Alt believed she was suffering from demonic possession and urged the local bishop to allow an exorcism. In a letter to Alt in 1975, Michelle wrote, I am nothing. Everything about me is vanity. What should I do? I have to improve. You pray for me. And also once told him, I want to suffer for other people, but this is so cruel. In September of the same year, Bishop Joseph or Joseph Stangl granted the priest Arnold Renz permission to exercise according to the Ritual Romanum of 1614, but ordered total secrecy. Renz performed the first session on the 24th of September. Michelle began talking incessantly about dying to atone for the wayward youth of the day and the apostate priests of the modern church, and she refused to eat towards the end. At this point, her parents stopped consulting doctors on her request and relied solely on the exorcism rites. 67 exorcism sessions, one or two each week, lasting up to four hours, were performed over about 10 months in 1975 and 1976. So there is a lot of thought uh, out there, and I believe this was actually covered in the movie The Exorcist, that if a person believes that they're possessed and they believe in the exorcism, that can go a long way to curing them or helping them, even if it is a mental illness, because the power of belief is so strong. Mm -hmm. And you would think that everyone would be for it. You know, hey, you know, this medicine hasn't worked. Maybe if we just you know, do this exorcism, then we can help her. The problem lies in what goes on with the exorcism. And I, I guess they didn't deny her food or water, but at some point you have to be able to look at someone and say they're going to die. And we need to get them to the hospital, get them IVs, uh, get them a feeding tube, whatever. Because when you die, does it matter if you were possessed or had a mental illness? I don't, I, I mean, when you're dead, you're dead. And, you know, I don't think, in my humble opinion, that God is going to say, well, you know, they got her soul, so I'm not going to take her into heaven. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I feel like they, and I hate to use this term, but I feel like they really dropped the ball. And you, you say as a, a priest or a parent, hey, this doesn't matter if she dies. Let's get her body healthy. So she's, or, or not even healthy, but not in critical condition. Let's get her right. stabilized. I, I guess I can kind of compared to this if you get in a car accident and 
you have a broken arm and you have a piece of metal jabbed in through your lung, the doctor's not going to say, well, what do you think we should do first? You want to set this broken arm? Should we set this broken arm or should we, you know, fix the metal pole going through her chest? And I feel like they were kind of like, well, should we fix her body so she can perhaps survive the exorcism? Or did they think, hey, if we exercise her and she dies, her soul will be saved? You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like they treated know. the broken arm. Yeah, it's a different time, though, in a different part of the world. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, who knows? I don't know how different it really was or, or what her family's beliefs were. If she was a, a quiet, church-going kid, her parents might have been religious to the point that, like you said, maybe it's better to go through these rites and die mm-hmm. than to continue being afflicted in this way. I mean, I guess none of us can say until we have a child who's, you know, severely sick or we believe they're possessed. You don't really know what you're going to do until it it gets to that point. I don't know. I mean, where I come from spiritually, I believe in God, Christian God, Jesus. I do believe people can be possessed, but I also think that there's a lot of fakers out there a lot of a lot of people that claim to be possessed that are mentally ill and priests out there that are not they're not bound by the morals that you would think they would be so my daughter is going to be confirmed soon and in her class she takes PSR they showed a video saying this is what the world is trying to push on you about priests. They're trying to say that, and there was a poll taken and they, the general public, not Catholics, but you know, I'm sure there were Catholics in there that were polled, believe that over 50% of priests are pedophiles. Not true. I admit that not true, but this video said, only about 2% of priests are pedophiles and tried to present that as like evidence is like, see, we're overreacting. And my daughter, I'm so proud of her. She's like, that's a lot. Why are you saying only 2%? That's two out of yeah. every hundred priests are pedophiles. That's not acceptable. So the, the point is that they're not always all on the up and up. You know, that's mm. a, a presented in a way to say that no you guys are overreacting and she saw it as like I've met a hundred priests in my life so two out of them were pedophiles it's messed up that's the right reaction to have Mm -hmm. it's a smart kid um yeah I don't think I have anything to add to that I was going to but yeah no I I get what you mean sometimes sometimes we have more faith in people than we should Mm-hmm. Sometimes we don't have enough faith in people that we should. I guess that's kind of a theme here. Not enough faith in doctors, maybe too much faith in the priests. Well, in, you know. in the report presented also said that 1.8 to 5% of males are pedophiles. And I don't know if that's correct or not. I don't know where the statistics came from and statistics yeah. can be manipulated. Right, right. I don't know how you would... Uh, there's I was just telling Kim about this the other day a friend of mine like one of my oldest friends mm-hmm. uh, is in early childhood like education mm-hmm. got a master's in it you know teaches the whole nine yards mm-hmm. and she was telling me about uh, the appearance of you know your your lady garden your what and the way that the vagina. lady garden and, and the gentleman sausage, yes. <laughs> uh, the, yeah. She was saying, she anyway, she was telling me about the way that part of a woman looks at different stages in their lives. <sighs> and when surveyed, men prefer this particular look. Okay. And she was saying that's really weird, and the reason that they're studying it is because that is the way 
that part of your anatomy appears when you're like 15, like between like 13 and 15, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was just this thing that they brought up as like, I guess a thing to be aware of when you're teaching like young kids and stuff like that is for some reason, men potentially display a preference for this particular age of anatomy or something. It was just really odd, but it made me wonder like how, how did they get that data? Yeah. Like, why do you know that? Why did they decide to teach that? How do they know that? Are they, did somebody actually say like, maybe men just like the vagina of a young person better than of an older person? Mm -hmm. Like, let's draw pictures of them and show them to guys and see what they look like. Because I think we can all admit that like with a clear, cold logical mind like all of our bits and bobs down there look horrific yes just as an objective object like your downstairs yes you know bedroom bits they just it's not it's not an attractive thing for the most part that's why they call it bump and uglies yeah so it's like a super weird thing to show so i can just imagine guys being like i'm just gonna check a whatever that is just move on to the next question so i don't have to look at this anymore like it's such an odd thing but yeah to be able to say this is like this is our first big tangent of this (laughs) it's just (laughs) such an odd thing to be like yeah one in that what was it 1.8 percent or two percent of men are are pedophiles 1.8 to five percent yeah, I think and what is that? really high. But this this study also. But does said, that mean that a man who's like twenty is attracted to like a seventeen year old? Right. Is that a pedophile still, or or an eighteen year old man with a seventeen year old girl? Well, a pedophile is defined as someone who's attracted to someone who's prepubescent. Oh, I guess that's right. Pedophile is a specific term. It mm-hmm. means attracted to a particular age group. Okay. All right. Well, I don't. I don't know. Well, I don't know if that's something where maybe they took like a prison population <laughs> and looked at like what proportion of you are here for this particular thing. Yeah. And tried to extrapolate that, like, yeah, blow that up to the whole population. Right. the The point being is, it's okay to hold certain people up to higher standards too. If you know that, you know, say person A was molested when they were seven years old, you don't hold that person up to the same standard as you would, say, a police officer or a teacher or a priest. You hold them to higher standards because they say that they have higher standards, right? Mm -hmm. It's not something that should translate like that Uh, what percentage of people in this country are murderers well if you say you know three percent have killed somebody well that doesn't mean that it's okay if only three percent of priests have killed somebody no they're held to a higher standard they hold themselves to a higher standard and they should be held to a higher standard and i don't know it's, it was just an odd, you know, surveys are odd. And could you imagine like, hey, we, we have an opening for a focus group. Come on in. You get in and then they're like, what age vagina are you most attracted to? Yeah. <clears throat> I think she just wanted to talk to me about her vagina. I'm going to be completely honest. but <laughs> Anything to work it into the conversation, huh? It was, it was very odd. But yeah, speaking of working things into the conversation... You should probably just leave all this in unedited. Yeah, I will. Just 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 don't even bother trying to like cut around it. Just have me saying like Lady Garden because I don't know like if you want that kind of language on your thing. Like I don't know if you want to have to check the explicit box or if that'll trigger something. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, you know, when you teach kids about stranger danger or whatever, you know, you use the appropriate terminology because if a kid is molested, you need them to be able to say, he touched my vagina, not he touched my lady garden, because there's uh, wiggle room in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and by and, the way, I'm totally stealing. I steal my uh, my terminology from uh, 
Jeremy Clarkson from Top Gear. <laughs> like years and years ago, he he said he was talking about they were in some country, and I was like, "Be careful of these words because this one means lady garden, and this one means gentleman sausage." And like, hmm. they just avoid anything because that show was on in so many countries. <laughs> that mm-hmm. was the phrase they used, and it stuck with me. <laughs> All right. So tell us what happened on July 1st, 1976. Uh, unfortunately, Annalise died in her home. The autopsy report states that the cause of death was malnutrition and dehydration resulting from nearly a year in a semi-starved state while the rites of exorcism were being performed. She was 5 foot 11 and weighed 66 pounds. She also suffered broken knees due to continuous genuflections, meaning the kneeling you do during particular prayers. For those of our audience who didn't grow up Catholic. Mm-hmm. She was unable to move without assistance and was reported to have contracted pneumonia. So that's really tall. I didn't realize that she was that tall. Yeah. Actually. Like yeah. that's that's very tall to weigh that little. I mean, yeah. any any height, basically, unless you're like five. Right. Is you know, that's just so light. Like, I can't imagine what a 60, like I'm saying, like a five-year-old weighs like 50, 60 pounds. Right. Not a 23-year-old who's five foot 11. Right. And the signs were so stark and dramatic that it's not like, oh, well, you know, she lost like 15 pounds during the exorcism. It was like, no, she lost more than half her body weight and she had broken knees. And if... If you, you know, going back to the broken bone thing, if you have someone with a broken bone, you have to fix that. That's your job as a priest or a doctor or a parent to call it out and be like, listen, she's got broken knees, dude. We got to go get this fixed before we do anything else. And I mean, I've actually had a shattered patella from a, a motorcycle accident and it is excruciating. It is absolutely excruciating. I've said it before. I've never given birth, never will, but that pain was intense. And I could not imagine not having medical care after that happened. I couldn't imagine the pain. And I think that when you're in a state of constant pain, your mind tries to go somewhere else. You know what I mean? Like your mind is is saying it's going to either, it's going to do a couple things. You're either going to totally disassociate. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to disassociate. You're going to try and go someplace else in your mind or your body is going to just provide a huge adrenaline dump. And then after that, it's just constant pain. And when you have pneumonia, that's something you have to be treated for. You know, it's not something that's necessary. Now, I'm sure people have had pneumonia and survived it and been okay, but a lot of people have died from it. So you need to get that checked out. And that brings us, I think, to the prosecution. Do you have anything else you want to say about her, the responsibility of the so-called clear-minded people that were in her life? I don't think there's anything I could say that would add much value to the conversation, I mean, there's nothing, I don't think there's any reasonable person who could see somebody who's 5'11 and 66 pounds and think that things are going well. Yeah. That we're like just about to, you know, round a corner on this and yeah. come have a, have a comeback. It, right. I don't know. I mean, that, I, I mean, she looked dead. Right. She looked terrible. There are a bunch of pictures where it, she looks like a corpse. And it's, mm-hmm. oh, no, wait, no, she wasn't dead in that picture. That's from such and such day. So what happens if a kid goes to school and they have a broken leg and their parents don't take them to the doctor? They are probably going to be getting a call from a social worker or that <laughs> They're going to lose their kid. Home. They're yeah. going to get prosecuted. And it's going to be, at the very least, neglect. But if you are partially responsible saying, get down on your knees and pray, get down on your knees and pray, and, and they have broken legs, I mean, that's that's goes beyond neglect, right? 
genuflection is a specific movement. Mm-hmm. That's the one. That's it. That's where you kneel on one knee and do the sign of the cross, right? Yeah, you're supposed to genuflect before you go into like a, a pew at mm-hmm. a church, right? That's that's that movement, right? So if if they're like, it's not even just a thing of like kneeling all the time to where it happens, and you might not know that it's happened. It's like it's this constant like down onto that knee, back up, right. down onto that knee, back up, like. I'm trying to think of any way that it would be reasonable to ignore that. But I guess maybe if you're used to this person like screaming all the time anyway, maybe you wouldn't know. But Yeah, but uh, you would think that the the knees, I mean, when it happened to me, when I woke up in the hospital, it looked like someone had sewn a grapefruit into my kneecap. That's mm-hmm. what it looked like. I mean, my my mom and my aunt came in and started crying by the way my knee looked. And, you know, when you have a broken bone, it's not just like it looks normal. I, I mean, the sight swells up. It's it's not something that can be ignored. And so a genuflection mm-hmm. is similar to a lunge. So for those of you that have done a lunge before, just imagine doing a thousand of them in a day or over, you know, a hundred of them in a day. I mean, that would be awful. In any case, it's a lot. It's a lot of lunges. Try a lunge. Just, you know, step up from your desk or wherever you're at. Step one foot forward. Kneel. And then step back up. And see how many times you can do that. It's not going to be a hundred. It's not going to be a thousand. It's going to be, you know, maybe 40 if you're in good shape. But let's get to the prosecution. After an investigation, the state prosecutor maintained that Michelle's death could have been prevented even one week before she died. In 1976, the state charged Michelle's parents and the priests, Ernst Alt and Arnold Wren, with negligent homicide. The parents were defended by Eric Schmidt-Leichner, who has also defended numerous persons in Nazi war crimes trials. So, ace representation right there. The priest's lawyers were paid for by the Catholic Church. The state recommended that no involved parties be jailed. Instead, the recommended sentence for the priest was a fine, while the prosecution concluded that the parents should be exempt from punishment as they had suffered enough, which is a criterion in German penal law. So I heard an interesting quote one time that said, if a crime is punished with a fine, it means it's legal for a price. And when someone's life is lost a fine just doesn't cut it when there were ample opportunities for that person's life to be saved yeah in my opinion yeah her parents suffered enough um it doesn't say a whole lot for you when you get someone who defends nazi war criminals though you know what i mean sometimes people are judged by the uh, right or wrong they're judged by the lawyer they pick if you pick somebody that you know is a piece of shit that will lie cheat and steal and do everything they can possibly do to get you out of a crime then it kind of in my opinion says like oh they know there's a a guilt here and if this guy can get you know war criminals off then he can probably do the same for us. And that's maybe something that, you know, shouldn't be looked at. It's not necessarily fair to judge a person's guilt based on their choice of attorney, but it doesn't help. Yeah. I mean, who knows what their choices were back then? You know, who knows how common that's lawyers true. were or how many had def- defended somebody involved in, you know, whatever was going on. Um, but at the same time, we have such a connotation now around lawyers, because mm-hmm. when we think of lawyers, what I typically think of are ambulance chasers. Yeah. I mean, despite the fact that I worked in the legal department at one point, and I knew many of the lawyers, and they were good people doing good work, mm-hmm. like most people still think of these lawyers who are out for themselves, who won't accept a case or any work unless unless they're sure to win. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, winning is everything. All right, let's go to the trial. 
started on March 30th, 1978, so a couple years after, and it was in the district court and, of course, drew intense interest. You know, a media sensation, I'm sure. Before the court, doctors testified that Michelle was not possessed. How can you know for sure that someone was not possessed? It's a supernatural thing. Now they could say she, they're qualified to say she had this disease or this mental illness, but nobody is qualified to say someone is not possessed because it's not something that can be proven or disproven, in my opinion. I agree, yeah. It's kind of like how everybody's an expert. Everybody who testifies on anything is an expert. Anybody who's on TV Mm -hmm. is an expert. (laughs) I mean, the doctors could say, in their opinion, they've been treating her for these conditions, but Mm -hmm. they, they can say, we're pretty sure she has this. Mm-hmm. They can't say we know for sure she doesn't have this other thing going on. And there's expert witnesses at so many trials where the prosecution brings in an expert witness that says this. The uh, defense brings in an expert witness that says, no, that's not right. Well, they're both experts, technically, but one of them is wrong or lying. <laughs> So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the doctors said that it was a psychological effect because of her strict religious upbringing and her epilepsy. But Dr. Richard Roth, who was asked for medical help by Alt, allegedly told her during the exorcism that, quote, there is no injection against the devil, Annalise. So there was a doctor there at, at some point, uh, but why is he not on trial? I had read that the doctor was friends with Alt. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't in an official capacity? Yeah, he said that he was there as kind of like a, you know, just curious about it kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but not in an official capacity as like a doctor and patient. And then your boy, Schmidt Leichner, said that the exorcism was legal and that the German constitution protected citizens in the unrestricted exercise of their religious beliefs. So, the defense played tapes recorded at the exorcism session, sometimes featuring what was claimed to be, quote, demons arguing to assert their claim that Michelle was possessed. Both priests said the demons identified themselves and this is something that comes up a lot that I don't know about the credibility of. We know that demons lie, but in this case, they allegedly identified themselves as Lucifer, Cain, Judas Iscariot, Belial, Legion, Hitler, and Nero, amongst others. They further said that she was finally freed because of the exorcism just before her death. And the point being that it seems like in a lot of these exorcism cases or cases of demonic possession, it's always famous people. You know, it's never like this third rate demon that, you know, got a hold of somebody's soul or found a way in or whatever. It's always the big guys, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. always Legion because they are many. It's always Lucifer. You know, it's it's these people that are well known. But the bishop said that he was not aware of her alarming health conditions when he approved of the exorcism and he did not testify. That's very odd 
that the person that gave the okay for this was not held accountable at all and didn't even testify. Hmm. I mean, if he... I guess it depends on how much involvement he had in it. If he just gave the okay at the start of this 10-month saga, then maybe that's reasonable. Yeah, but it's always the people that are in charge that are held accountable. You know, you don't you don't invest in General Mills and then say, well, the person that was supposed to be sealing up the bags did a shitty job. No, it falls on the person who's in charge, and the bishop was in charge. And if he did not keep up on what was going on in the exorcism, then to me, he's partially liable as well. Anyway, the accused were convicted of negligent homicide and were given suspended prison sentences in April of 1978 and were, quote, ordered to share the costs of the proceedings. So, government wants their money back. Wah. Yeah. The sentences have been described as stiffer than requested by the prosecutor who had asked that the priests only be fined and that the parents be found guilty but not punished. The church approving such an old-fashioned exorcism rite drew public and media attention. According to John M. Duffy, the case was a misidentification of mental illness. So, it's kind of the age-old question. You know, we're never going to be able to prove that she was possessed or not possessed. And mental illnesses can't really be identified by medical equipment, I guess. Yeah. Like you can't necessarily do a brain scan and say, well, this person's bipolar. You can't do a brain scan and say, uh, you know, this person is schizophrenic. Now you can do a brain scan or some other type of technique and say, this person has activity in this part of their brain, which is consistent with epilepsy, right? Right. What happened later on? After the trial, the parents asked the authorities for permission to exhume the remains of their daughter. The official reason presented by the parents to authorities was that Michelle had been buried in a hurry and in a cheap coffin. Almost two years after the burial, on the 25th of February 1978, her remains were placed in a new oak coffin lined with tin. The official reports state that the body bore the signs of consistent deterioration. The accused exorcists were discouraged from seeing the remains of Michelle. Arnold Renz later said that he had been prevented from entering the mortuary. Her grave became and remains a pilgrimage site. The number of officially sanctioned exorcisms decreased in Germany due to this case, in spite of Pope Benedict XVI's support for wider use of it compared to Pope John Paul II, who in 1999 made the rule stricter, involving only rare cases. On the 6th of June, 2013, a fire broke out in the house where Annalise Michelle lived, and although the police said it was a case of arson, some locals attributed it to the exorcism case. What were they expecting to find? Were they expecting that her body would still be, you know, perfectly preserved and that would show, you know, similar to when they talk about saints not deteriorating, like the body doesn't deteriorate, it stays in a in a good condition or it deteriorates a lot less rapidly than... Yeah, or in, or in old school vampire cases where a body is found in much better or different condition than it should have been or it's turned mm. over or you know just something weird about it that might have been what they were expecting and it's odd you know i don't know a lot about burials and and stuff like that but it, it struck me as a little odd that it was lined with tin i have no idea why it would be lined with tin do you i actually don't i mean i guess if it's available with a tin liner it's something that has you know people have used in the past but yeah i don't know i know why they're lined today like why coffins are lined the way they are today mm -hmm. uh quickly it's because of abraham lincoln <laughs> when lincoln was shot his body was one of the first to be uh what's the word embalmed uh -huh. and put on display. They like brought him, brought his body around the country uh -huh. and it 
became a thing to get embalmed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the lining and things that go into modern coffins uh, is mainly to keep the chemicals that we stuff bodies with from leaching into the ground. Uh, it's more to protect the earth from the bodies than the bodies from the earth. Yeah, that's also a thing that should stop. Like embalming bodies, just bury them. Right. It's natural, just bury them. Right. Yeah, it makes no sense. And while we're off on a tangent, uh, just real quick, all these archaeologists and scientists and stuff stop digging graves up. If you have any humanity in you or you call yourself a Christian, let them rest in peace. I understand that you want to prove this and you want to prove that and you want to be so smart and and teach the world all these wonder. They're human beings. Leave them be. And that's that's my tangent. That's what I think. All right. Well, again, we love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, follow, and all of that. Tell your friends. Give us your opinions. Let us know what you want to hear about at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to check out Exploring Evil and Movie Howl. Have yourselves a wonderful night. Don't listen to the footage before you go to sleep. Good night, Crypt Keepers.